God, we so need to be taught by you. We need to be fed. We need you to encourage and strengthen us uh, for the week ahead, for our lives. Please do this, we pray, through your word, by the power of your spirit. Please, Father, uh, may your word not be not seem dead and dull and lifeless this day, but uh, be alive and active and cutting us to the hearts, out to our heart. And it might change us and make us more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, I wanted to start today by asking you a question, uh, maybe a bit of a, a difficult question, but the question is, uh, what would you say is your happiest memory? Happiest memory, you, know, you look back through all the different experiences you've had in your life, uh, what would you say is your happiest memory? Uh, some of you might have heard this before, uh, in, uh, because uh, we've run a, a course in our church a couple of times called Life Explored, uh, and in that they reference a, a 2014 uh, British TV show. It was produced by a bunch of uh, uh, English uh, artists and musicians and creatives of, of various kinds, and they put to thousands of British people this exact question. What would you say is your happiest memory? Uh, the responses came flooding in, thousands of different responses. Uh, you can imagine some of the different things that, that might have come up. There were first dates, first loves, uh, births, marriages, new jobs, promotions, or whatever, uh, great traveling experiences, all, all sorts of wonderful, happy memories. And as they sifted through all these different responses, three things became clear. The first thing that became clear is less than 1% of these most happy memories had anything to do with material things. You know, money, wealth, homes, all those kind of things, less than 1% of, of all these thousands of memories. Uh, the second thing that became clear is that nearly all the memories were about relationships, right? or about people spending time with the people that they loved most. Uh, and the third thing that, that became clear as they kind of fed all these memories through some sort of data analysis on a computer, it spat out what the most common words were, uh, and the most common word that came up was the word home. And all these wonderful, happy memories, and the most common word was the word home. The happiest memories were when people uh, felt a, a deep sense of comfort and rest and fulfillment, a deep sense of contentment uh, that comes from being at home. I wonder why we, we have this longing for being at home. You know, we live our lives, we're kind of discontent, we're dissatisfied, we're restless, and we long to feel at home. It's a longing that never seems to be satisfied. Why do we have this longing? Uh, some of you might have read a book by uh, a guy named C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity. In that book, he says this. Uh, I'm just going to read part of a longer quote. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was created for another world. If I find uh, myself, uh, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was created for another world. You see what he's saying? He's saying God has planted in all of us this deep desire for being at home, right? for, for finding a place of, uh, of complete comfort and rest and security, the, the sort of things you might associate with, with being at home. Uh, and he's saying that that longing will only be satisfied when we're at home with God when we're in relationship with God, right? First, where we can be at home with God in this life to an extent, and ultimately we'll be at home with God in the next life, in the new heavens and new earth. And I talk about this whole idea of being at home because Ruth chapter 1 is a story about coming home. 
It's a story about being at home, about leaving home and coming home. The key idea in this chapter, really summarizing the chapter, is that leaving home leads to emptiness and coming home leads to fullness. Leaving home leads to emptiness, coming home leads to fullness. Leaving God, rejecting God, uh, that, that path leads to emptiness. Coming back to God, returning to God, leads to fullness. And now before we look at Ruth chapter 1, just a couple of preliminary things. Uh, some of you might know, really, the book of Ruth is one big story that's designed to be read in one sitting. It's got four different acts, four different scenes. It's a dramatic story. Uh, and you're supposed to read the whole thing through. It'll take you kind of 20 or 25 minutes to do that. Uh, but what we're going to do on Sundays when we're looking at the book of Ruth is look at each of those scenes in turn. Right, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And of course, the real positive of that is that we have a whole lot of cliffhangers. You know, each week it's like, what's going to happen next? Oh, I want to know the rest of the story. Right, there's nothing wrong with that. The negative of it is that you risk misunderstanding any particular scene that you're looking at or even distorting it because you haven't looked at the whole picture yet. Right, so what I'm going to encourage you to do, two things I want you to do. One is make a habit over the next five or six weeks. I'm saying it's a bit longer. There's only four scenes, but we've got church camp in the middle and those kind of things. So uh, let me encourage you uh, at least a few times to read through the whole book of Ruth by yourself in your own quiet times. Maybe do that. I say 20, 25 minutes. Please do that. And the second thing is uh, be attend your gospel community. If you're not in a gospel community, please join one because our Bible studies over the next few weeks are going to follow the book of Ruth. And each study is going to kind of is designed to have you looking through the whole book of Ruth in one go. So that kind of help you join some of those dots. Uh, so let's first look at verses, uh, verses 1 to 4 in this first scene of the big story of the book of Ruth, you will see there that the big idea in these verses is that leaving home leads to emptiness. Uh, verses 1 and 2 really set the scene for the whole drama. You know, just nailing down, nailing down some details uh, about the timing, for example. It's in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, the book of Judges, of course, it's the book right before Ruth. If you're looking through the books of the Bible, it's right before Ruth. And in many ways, the key verse in the book of Judges is the last verse. Right, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, uh, which says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Right, so this is the days of the judges. Israel doesn't have a king yet. Uh, so in a sense, everyone lives as if they're king. Right, everyone's got their own little crown on, living in accordance with their own self-centered, rebellious desires, and it leads to absolute chaos in, amongst the people of Israel. Uh, and so the, there's really a, a key cycle or kind of downward spiral in the book of Judges. Uh, you can uh, read it in, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 19, if you like. But the, the, the basic cycle of the book of Judges uh, is that the people of God uh, reject him and worship idols. Uh, they, they get oppressed by the, uh, the people, uh, the, uh, kind of the other peoples who live in the land. Uh, they cry out to God for mercy. And God provides a deliverer for them, right? a particular judge, whether it be Gideon or Barak or um, Deborah. But he provides a judge, a deliverer them from this cycle of evil uh, for only the cycle to start all over again. It's quite a depressing book, the book of Judges. I mean, there's glimmers of hope, but it's really a very ugly period for the people of Israel. It's a period full of idolatry and corruption. It's, there's rape in the book of Judges. There's uh, horrific murder. There's abuse. Uh, all kinds of immorality. 
Israel, who's been set free from Egypt, brought through the wilderness, brought into the promised land. And God said to them, if you worship me, if you obey me, uh, this will be a blessed land. You know, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the catchphrase. But what's happening in Ruth 1 verse 1? This is the situation. There's a famine in the land. A famine in the land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. You see, Israel might have thought that they could get away with worshipping the gods of the nations. They could just get away. You know, God would kind of God wouldn't follow through on his warnings of punishment. Because God had warned them. You can look it up in Leviticus chapter 26. God had warned his people, say in from verse 14, Leviticus 26, verse 14. God said to his people, if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands. Verse 19, I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron, you know, no rain, and the ground beneath you like bronze, too hard to get crops. So verse 20, uh, your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. You see, the, the situation in the book of Ruth, Israel, but because of their repeated idolatry, uh, their repeated disobedience against God, uh, God has brought a famine to the land, just as he warned he would in Leviticus chapter 26. And so really there's a warning for us there. there? The warning is, don't think that God won't follow through on his warnings of judgment. You mustn't think that. God uh, isn't like the parent who's all talk and no follow-through. You know, some parents are like that. Like, if you do this, if you do that, oh, I'm gonna, uh, there's going to be this consequence, there's going to be this punishment, like judgment is going to come down. Uh, but the, the kid knows there's no follow-through. The kid's all over the shop, right? Because mum and dad are all talk and no follow-through. Right? God is not like that. God warns his people that if you disobey me, there will be consequences. And here in the book of Ruth, he's following through on those consequences. And of course, he's warned us, not that if we disobey him, there will be no food in the pantry. No, that's not God's warning to us. But his warning is that our sin is so serious, it's deserving of his righteous judgment. And so we better repent now and put our trust in Christ that we might have eternal life. That's the warning. And we mustn't think that God won't follow through on that warning. So the timing of the book of Ruth is the days when the judges ruled. The situation is there's a famine in the land. Uh, The place is Bethlehem. You see that? Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, There's something a bit ironic about that. You you, you might not pick this up, but the the name Bethlehem uh, literally means house of bread. So we've got this odd situation in verse 1 where the house of bread has no bread. Right? That's the irony that the narrator's kind of wanting us to get. The house of bread has a shortage of bread. There's a famine in the land. And so we zoom in on this particular family, the family of Naomi and Elimelech. And at first it's quite promising, isn't it? Like I don't know if you've got a little footnote in your Bible, but... Uh, the, la- the name Elimelech means uh, God is my king. You remember Christ from the cross says, Eli, Eli. Right, that's God, God, my God, my God. Right, Eli, Eli, Lama Samachthani. Like that, that's what he quotes. Right, so th- this is Eli, Melech. God is my king. Melech means king. And so, so here is someone uh, who gives us hope, right? Elimelech is someone perhaps 
uh, who in a time and place where everyone was rejecting the idea that God was king, is living with God as his king. What a promising name. And then there's Naomi, whose name means pleasant. Uh, so in all, as, as far as initial introductions, uh, this family seems quite promising. They're, they're from the prominent tribe of Judah. Uh, they're living in a fairly prosperous area uh, around Bethlehem. Things seem to be good. Have a look there at the end of verse 1. The family goes to live in Moab. Moab. Right? That's a place that no God-honoring Israelite would ever go to live. Even to visit. All right, if you remember the, the origins of the, the, the people of Moab, it's pretty colourful. You know, Genesis 19, you can read up later on, but uh, Lot's oldest daughter uh, gets him drunk and then sleeps with him, and the child that comes from that, the son, is named Moab. Okay, so you know, the Moabites describing the origins of uh, their, their people. Uh, it's not overly, uh, you know, it's not overly positive there. And then uh, if you read the book of Numbers, there's a few chapters in a row. You know, Numbers 22 to 24, it's Balak, the king of Moab, uh, who calls on Balaam uh, to pr- uh, kind of curse the people of Israel. And then in chapter 25 of Numbers, it's Moabite women uh, who seduce the Israelite men and they go and worship the idols of the, of the people of Moab. And so in Deuteronomy 23, before Israel kind of settles down in the land, God says to his people, do not form any kind of relationship with the people of Moab. You know, they're dangerous. Don't form any kind of formal relationship, any kind of treaties, really any sort of friendship at all. And yet here this couple, right, Elimelech and Naomi, decide to go to the country of Moab. So probably it was Elimelech's initiative, but Naomi agrees. They go to the country of Moab, we're told in verse 1, for a while, which is literally means they're going to sojourn there, you know, we're just going to pass through for a little while. But in verse 2, you see that they live there, right? That they settle down in Moab. And you put yourself in their shoes, maybe this is understandable. You know, they've got two young sons, we'll come to them in a second, Marlon and Kilion. Uh, you know, Elimelech's out in the field all day, uh, the amount of food coming home uh, that's been put on the table is getting less and less and less. Naomi's kind of on his case, you know, well, what are we going to do? These kids, they need food, they've got to grow. Uh, and Elimelech says, you know, I heard out in the fields that there's food down in Moab. Well, maybe we should go down there. And you know, he's like, well, you know, like I, I feel like I heard somewhere once that there's something not quite right about Moab. Like or maybe, you know, remember this is the time of the judges. The, the law uh, is not being read very much. People are not as familiar with God's law. I, I feel like there's something not quite, about, quite right about Moab, but in the end we've got to put some food on the table for the kids. So let's go down to Moab. Right? Maybe it's understandable that they go to Moab. But still... It shows a real lack of faith in the Lord. Now, there's a real parallel here to Abraham. You can read Genesis chapter 12. Abraham's in the land of Canaan. There's a famine. And instead of trusting God, Abraham goes down to Egypt to sojourn, you know, for a little while, instead of trusting God to provide. And that's really what Elimelech does here. A famine in the land, but instead of trusting God, instead of um, repenting of his sin and crying out to God for mercy and trusting that God would provide in his uh, abundant kindness, uh, instead of doing all that, he decides to take matters into his own hands and go down to Moab for a little while. 
And of course, there's a warning in the names of his sons that things aren't going to go well down there. Right? Marlon means sickly, diseased. Kilion means wasting away to nothing, even annihilation. Right? Uh, Gabby and I are due to have uh, a child in July, uh, another son. Uh, let me tell you, these names are scratched off the list. You know, we're, we're not naming. Uh, Come here, sickly. You know, it just got a real ring to it, doesn't it? So, um, but you know, there's a sense things aren't going to go well down in Moab, and that's what we see in verses three to five. You know, it's just rapid fire suffering. It's just really quick, isn't it? Just, I mean, you can skim over that as if it's nothing. Elimelech goes down there finding li- uh, seeking life for he and his family, but all he finds is death. Marlon and Kilion in, in their dad's absence, uh, not that he seemed to be providing much kind of quality leadership anyway, but they decide to marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Right? Something, uh, another thing that God had forbidden his people from doing. Uh, and ten years after that, Marlon and Kilion also die. It's, it's horrific. Horrific. So I imagine that being your last ten years. Husband died, two sons died, left with absolutely nothing. That's Naomi in verse 5. Particularly because this is a thoroughly patriarchal culture. right? For, for her to have no husband, to have no sons, uh, leaves her incredibly vulnerable. It's really a, a complete stripping back of her sense of identity. Uh, the Hebrew here tries to capture that. Like the NIV, uh, you know, it, it does make things very clear, but the NIV says there in verse 5, uh, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Right? Quite fine translation. But the reality is the Hebrew just says the woman was left. But the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Right? The point being that the Naomi is really being stripped back of who she is to the point that, that it's hard for her to know who she is anymore. Right, and some of you probably have been in places of grief like that before. Right, certain relationships in your life have been so central to your identity that when they're ripped out of your life, it's like, well, uh, who am I? Just some woman. Just some man. No, no, no real sense of identity. That, that's Naomi in verse 5. So the key idea in, this, in these verses is that leaving home, leaving God... Uh, acting in, in unbelief, all that leads to emptiness. It does lead to emptiness. It might promise much, but it doesn't deliver much. Uh, sometimes when uh, I go to a conference for a week or, or perhaps uh, a camp or, or speak uh, or I've got a whole lot of different meetings, I'm away from home a whole lot, uh, I feel homesick. You know, you've felt that before, I'm sure. You feel homesick. I, I just really long to be at home with Gabby and the kids. And typically, that sort of homesick is for good reasons, noble reasons. You know, there's a particular ministry opportunity or something like that. When we talk about this sort of homesickness, right, spiritual homesickness, restlessness, the reality is that we're not homesick for good and noble reasons. Right? Sometimes we can paint it in that way. Oh, I feel restless, uh, but I, I'm, I'm kind of a victim. I'm apart from God. No, 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 that's not the picture the Bible paints. We're spiritually restless and discontent and homesick because we've rejected God. We've chosen to leave God, to rebel against God. And so we're homesick. 
we've done that, but because we honestly convinced that there's more life and freedom and satisfaction to be found apart from God. On some level, that's what we believe. And, of course, that is an absolute lie. Uh, some of you have seen this picture before, but uh, if we, uh, Grace, if we can uh, fire up this picture of the fish jumping out of the fishbowl. Imagine uh, this fish. Uh, I'm sure, uh, maybe on some level, the fish thought that being in that fishbowl was incredibly oppressive and restrictive. You know, it just wanted to experience some more freedom. Oh, let's get that back up. Uh, it just wanted to experience some more freedom and life and, and, and joy. Like, I imagine the freedom of coming out of the fishbowl. Of course, what's left for the fish? Sickness, suffering, death. It promised lots, but it delivered little, because the fish is made to live and thrive and flourish in water. But likewise, we might be convinced that, that being in a relationship with God is horribly oppressive. It's restrictive. It would be far better if we took matters into our own hands and did life our own way. Jump out of relationship with God. But all that's left for us, so we're like fish out of water, sickness, suffering and death, emptiness. Because God made us to find our home in Him, you see. To live and thrive and flourish in relationship with Him. And that's really a picture of verses 1 to 5. Now He's jumped out of the fishbowl and it hasn't gone well. Uh, we can get rid of the fishbowl now. Uh, so in her desperate state, uh, Naomi hears some good news from home. Verse 6. Look at verse 6 there. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Uh, we don't know how Naomi heard this good news. You know, she obviously... I didn't pick it up on some viral social media video or whatever it was, but, but this good news is, is spreading. And the good news you see there, it's about the Lord, right? Small caps, Lord, that, that's the special name that God gave to his people, uh, Israel. We saw that in Psalm 16 last week. A special name that speaks of God's uh, loving kindness to his people, right? His continual faithfulness to his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. This is good news about the Lord, and it's news about what the Lord has done. What the Lord has done. He's come to the aid of his people. He's provided food for his people. You know, Notice what verse 6 doesn't say. It perhaps could have said that oh, Naomi heard that the rainfall had increased back near Bethlehem, or that the soil had become more fertile, or, or that some farmers had developed new techniques. No, it doesn't say any of that. This is good news about what the Lord has done. He's come to the aid of his people. So hearing this good news, Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, uh, they decide to go home. Uh, perhaps I, I, maybe I could have got a picture for this. But you know, after, uh, sometimes after a natural disaster, I was thinking about uh, the tsunami back in 2004, if you can remember that. Uh, sometimes you'll see shots on the news of helicopters flying over an area that's been devastated by a natural disaster and they're dropping down parcels of aid to people. That's a parcel of food or medical supplies or, or, or sanitation stuff. And if it zooms in enough, uh, you can see that the joy on the face of these people who've been devastated. Finally, some aid has come. Some help has come. And that's wonderful. That's good news that someone's come to help them, to, to give them aid. Of course, the aid is delivered from a distance, isn't it? Right, the helicopter is dropping down these parcels of food. 
the, the ultimate good news of aid, like that we believe in as Christians, is not that God has offered us aid from a distance, but that he's become one of us in the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, entering into the devastation of this world, sickness, suffering and death, to bring us the ultimate aid, to bring us home to God, you see. This is the ultimate good news of what the Lord has done. Coming to the aid, not just of his people near Bethlehem, but to the aid of all people that we might come home to him. More about that later on. But this is the good news uh, that Ruth, uh, that uh, Naomi hears uh, in verse 6. Uh, and so she decides to head home with both Ruth and Orpah, uh, her daughters-in-law. And really the rest of the chapter is taken up with everything that happens on their way home. And uh, I wanted to summarize verses 7 to 18. You might see in your outline. Uh, but in some ways I want to tie together the key idea of this section uh, is that coming home, even with a struggling faith, produces faith in the lives of others. Uh, coming home to God, even with struggling faith, even in the midst of great suffering, produces faith in the lives of others. And once again, this is hard to, to capture uh, when, you, when you just kind of read it out, but the reality is this is an incredibly emotional scene, isn't it? Well, let me just highlight a few key words there, uh, particularly verses 9 and 14. If you look at those verses... You'll see there the references to, the, to these three women weeping with one another. Weeping, like sort of uncontrollable sobbing going on here. They're embracing it and kissing one another. Verse 9, verse 14. Verse 14, Ruth is clinging to Naomi, you know, clutching to her in desperation. It's a very emotional scene. Like if someone was to make a movie about the, the book of Ruth, I don't know if they had, but you know, this would be the moment where the violins are swelling up underneath, that they're kind of... It's very emotional, very emotional. And in the midst of that emotion, I think two things become clear. The first is that Naomi is a genuine believer. The second is that she's a struggling believer. So Naomi is, really is a believer. Verses 8 and 9, I say she's a believer because she prays to the Lord. May the Lord, she says, may the Lord show you kindness. Verse 9, may the Lord enable you to find rest in the home of another husband. She prays to the Lord, and she prays to the Lord uh, because she recognizes that the Lord is completely sovereign. She's got a very big view of God now. She, she's not always clear on, on, she can't always see her big view of God uh, in a balanced way. We'll get to that in a second. But she does have a big view of God. She recognizes that everything good comes from the Lord. And so if Ruth and Orpah are to find another husband, verses 8 and 9, it will be a sign of the Lord's kindness to them. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. James 1.17 Apart from you I have no good thing. Psalm 16, verse 2. We saw that last week. Right? That's, that's, that's Naomi's mindset. All good comes from the sovereign hand of God and all suffering comes from the Lord. Verse 13. The Lord's hand is against me, Naomi said. It's not that Naomi's blaming God. In verse 21, Naomi freely admits, I went away to Moab. She owns her. She doesn't make excuses. She doesn't pass the buck to Elimelech or that it'd be easy. He's died. He's not there to defend himself. You know, She could easily say, well, you know, like my husband went down there. What, what am I supposed to do? No, she doesn't say that. She says, I went away. I acted in, in, in unbelief. In doing that. And so the Lord's hand of discipline has been against me. 
I think that's what she's saying. The Lord has brought this suffering into my life, this discipline into my life, that I might come home to Him. He's allowed me to experience the, you know, Romans 1. He's given me over to my sin that I might experience the full emptiness of it and come home to Him. It's Luke 15. The youngest son goes away. It's not until he hits rock bottom, about to eat out of the pig trough. His father allows him that. And that discipline is painful, you know, but it leads him to come home to God. That's what Naomi's saying here. The Lord's hand is against me. So Naomi, as she prays to the Lord, because she knows that he's completely sovereign, she's a very selfless woman, verses 11 to 13. She's genuinely concerned about the welfare of Ruth and Orpah, I think. Some might interpret that differently, but I think it's generally, genuinely selfless there. And I think she must have had an incredibly attractive faith. These two daughters-in-law, they've known Naomi for, what, about 10 years, a bit over 10 years. They're first attracted to her sons. But now, for whatever reason, they're hanging around with her. Ruth makes this radical commitment to her in verses 16 and 17. She would never do that unless there was something incredibly attractive, not just about Naomi, but about her people and her God, you see. She, She must have seen Naomi in the midst of these trials, clinging in faith to the Lord. And that started to produce faith in her life. So Naomi, I think, is a genuine believer, but she's a struggling believer. She's a believer who is really feeling quite hopeless and depressed. That's understandable if you think about how life's gone in the last 10 or 15 years. Verses 11 to 13. You know, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? That verse is, is really, a, it's a bit more graphic than that. It actually reads as, have I got more sons in my guts, you know, in, my, in, in my intestines, that are just going to pop out for you? That's the picture. You know, you see, like there's real emotion in Naomi's voice. You guys are stupid. You know? Verse 12, uh, return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Uh, there's no hope clearly, but even though I thought there was still hope, she says, uh, even if I had a husband tonight and they gave uh, and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Uh, I've certainly felt this at times in my life. I'm sure many of you here have. Oh, I think Naomi's in the place where she feels like she's just sort of enveloped by a hopeless cloud of depression. I think that's what she does. She just feels utterly hopeless. Uh, she's experiencing real bitterness. Verse 12, the hand of the Lord's discipline is against me. Now I say this, Hebrews 12 uh, says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. I think that's what Naomi's experiencing. She's a believer who's wandered away from God, and God is bringing her back. But but his hand of discipline has been heavy upon her. It's been a painful experience to come home. And it's leaving a bitter taste in her mouth, she says. She's depressed, she's experiencing bitterness, and because of all that, I just think she can't see the Lord's goodness and kindness clearly. She's really doubting that. I think you see hints of that in verse 15. Uh, Orpah, she, uh, she says to Ruth, you know, Orpah's gone back to her people and her gods. 
And I think the subtext there is maybe you should do that too, you know? We're not even subtext. I mean, the, 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 I think Naomi is honestly grappling with the fact that maybe Ruth and Orpah would be better off with their gods. Actually, she's having real doubt about the Lord's goodness and kindness. She just can't see that clearly because of the incredible suffering she's endured. The Lord's hand is against her. So Naomi's a believer, but a really struggling believer. And so I think it's incredibly encouraging, isn't it, that the Lord uses Naomi's struggling faith to produce Ruth's really model faith. So look at Ruth's faith. Ruth is utterly determined in her faith. You know, three times Naomi urges her to turn back. But by verse 18, Naomi just gives up. You know, she's always pointless telling her to go away. She's clearly going to stick with me. She's completely determined. She's wholehearted in her faith. That word says that Ruth clings to Naomi. That word clings, the same word that describes husband and wife being united with one another in one flesh. The old translations would say they cleave to one another. They glue to one another. They're stuck with one another. And in verses 16 and 17, uh, Ruth unpacks a bit what that union's going to look like. You know, I'm so stuck to you that your journey will be my journey. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will say. Your home will be my home. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Your future, my future. We're stuck together. Nothing can separate us, Ruth says. Ruth's wholehearted in her commitment, uh, not just to Naomi, but to her people and to her God. And it's not just a, a flippant commitment. You know, not, not just caught up in the emotion of the moment. In verse 17, it's very serious commitment. She says, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. This is a woman who is living in fear of the Lord, appropriate respect of the Lord. A woman who knows that she's accountable to the Lord for the decisions and commitments that she makes. So she's taking that very seriously. Our two applications just to draw out of this whole section, verses 7 to 18. The first is just to assure you that it's really, really normal to have deep struggles and be a genuine believer. Very normal. Especially in the midst of suffering, it's normal to experience doubts, to experience bitterness, to to not be able to see the Lord's kindness and goodness towards you. That's just very normal. It doesn't mean that you're not a believer. Look at Naomi. She's just normal follower follower of Christ. That's why it's really encouraging. You know, Ruth's kind of of a new Christian, effectively firing at all cylinders. You know, ah, Naomi's more like us, right? Normal, struggling believer. That's the first thing. It's normal to experience those things. Uh, But second, uh, clinging to God in the midst of all those struggles can actually convince others to cling to God in faith. I think that's the encouragement here. Often we think that uh, before God could use me in evangelism or sharing my faith, I've got to sort out all my issues. I've got too many doubts, I've got too many weaknesses, I'm too fragile, I'm too discouraged, I'm too hopeless or depressed. Uh, God could never use me. Right? But, but the Lord does work through Naomi's struggling faith to produce Ruth's model faith. Uh, and so we come to the end of the, uh, these final verses, verses 19 to 22. 
I think the key idea here is that coming home leads to fullness. Uh, Verse 19, you know, there's a bit of a stir in the town when Naomi returns. Uh, That can happen in a kind of small, tight-knit community. Uh, Bethlehem's pretty small at this stage. Uh, There's a bit of a stir going on, and people recognize Naomi, but she does look a bit different. You know, can this really be Naomi, they're saying? Uh, She's she's kind of, what, 15, 20 years older by this stage? Uh, So she is the the normal aging process, as well as uh, the kind of extra aging that might have come from all the suffering she's experienced. Uh, Her and Ruth have been traveling home a number of days. Uh, They haven't had a wash for a while, probably. You know, like, can this really be Naomi? She just doesn't look like the person she used to be. And and Naomi says, you're right, I'm not the person I used to be. I, I don't want to be referred to as the same person. Verse 20, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I don't, don't call me pleasant anymore because I, I'm experiencing so much bitterness. Call me a name that's fitting. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Right, once again, Naomi's maturity as a believer, she owns the fact that she went away. Uh, but also, you know, if you're reading the, the rest of the chapter, are you like, okay, Naomi goes away of her own free will. Uh, she hears the good news, verse 6, of her own free will. Uh, she decides to go back of her own free will. But right? it's everything that Naomi did, right? Well, no, not, not according to Naomi. Naomi says, the Lord brought me back. That's incredibly, like, she attributes everything, remember? Big view of God. The Lord brought her back. But she does get this wrong, doesn't she? She brought uh, He brought me back empty. She's not true. Like, of course, Naomi feels empty, but she's not. Hey, I kind of put yourself in Ruth's shoes at that moment. Verses 16 and 17, she's made this incredible commitment to Naomi. I'll stick by you through thick and thin. And we're in this together. Two seconds later, Naomi's going, I've got nothing. Like, Ruth's like, well, what about me? You know? You're just standing there. She's got Ruth, uh, and we know from uh, later, you know, here's a sneak peek, you know, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, we know uh, from later in the book that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, has a piece of land around here. Right? Naomi's in so much pain and, and grief, she just can't kind of, she, it's like she's forgotten that. Uh, and chapter 4, verse 22, uh, in the end, uh, we see that, uh, you know, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Ruth gets together with Boaz, they have a son, Obed. Uh, and isn't it Obed uh, leads to Jesse and then David, and David is in the line of King uh, of King Jesus, right? This is the big message of, of the book of Ruth, that the Lord who is sovereign over all things, working through all things, has brought Naomi back, and not only does she have enough uh, fullness to meet all of her needs, but she has everything she needs to meet, uh, to meet the spiritual needs of people from every nation, right there with her, because Ruth has stuck with her, you see. So Naomi feels like she's come back empty, but the reality is uh, she comes back and there's a real promise of fullness. Uh, and that's what we see at the end of verse 22. They arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Right, we start with a famine, we end with a harvest. The Lord in his kindness has come to the aid of his people. The Lord has brought bread to this insignificant town of Bethlehem. Bread that would once again bring fullness of blessings to his people. 
that the land would once again be a place of blessing and life and satisfaction. That's what Naomi gets to share in because she comes home to her Lord. It's what Ruth gets to share in because she's come home to the Lord. And it's what you get to share in if you come home to the Lord, isn't it? Because in his loving kindness, uh, the Lord has not just come to the aid of of people uh, in the day of Judges, but to people in our day, in every day. He's come to our aid, not just by providing bread for the the, the people in and around Bethlehem, but but by providing heavenly bread for all people. You you can read John chapter 6 later on. But what does it say? The Lord Jesus says, I am the ultimate bread who God has provided. The bread who's come down from heaven, the bread of life. And where was he provided? He was provided in Bethlehem, you see. The bread of life provided in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. uh, The bread of life who offers us fullness of blessings. Fullness of blessings because by his death on the cross, uh, he can bring us home to God. He can bring us home to the Lord. He can offer us fullness because in his death on the cross, he experienced emptiness. He can offer us uh, real comfort because on the cross, he experienced the sorrow that we deserve. He can offer us healing because on the cross, he experienced the brokenness that we deserve. He can offer us, uh, as it were, the sweet-tasting cup of being assured of God's love and mercy and kindness towards us. He offers us that sweet tasting cup because on the cross he drank every last drop of the bitter bitter tasting cup. You know, Naomi's experiencing this bitterness. Well, the Lord Jesus drank every drop of that bitter tasting cup, the cup of the Lord's wrath and anger and judgment. Christ offers us fullness of life because on the cross he experienced the death that we deserve. But this is the good news of what the Lord has done. The good news of how he's come to the aid of people like us. Come to our aid to bring us home to him. uh, To the place that we've always longed for. To experience the the fullness of blessings that we've always longed for. And let me urge you this day to come home to God. Come home to him perhaps for the first time if you're here and you're not a Christian. Or come home to him again if you've wandered from him. And you need to come back to him. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, We do pray that anything that I've said that uh, wasn't useful uh, would be forgotten. And those things that are fruitful and edifying and that would lead people to to come home to you would be uh, impressed upon our hearts and minds. Uh, That we would uh, come home to you and experience life and joy and comfort and rest and all all those things that we associate with being at home, uh, that we'd experience those things in being at home with you. Amen.